Soundprints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Soundprints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Soundprints for the week of January 7, 2018. We hope all of you had a very happy new year. We've enjoyed bringing you news and information about blindness and visual impairment throughout 2017, and we hope that you've found Soundprints useful and informative. Please take the time to call or email us to let us know what you enjoy hearing on Soundprints and what you'd like for us to include in 2018. Reach us by calling the Kentucky Council of the Blind at 502-895-4598 or by emailing us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. On page 2, Eric Bridges, ACB Executive Director, takes a look back at the work of ACB in 2017. When we think about the work of ACB, legislation and regulations often come to mind. But there's so much more that has been happening in ACB to make our world a better place for blind and visually impaired people. Eric also looks ahead to 2018. As you know, our work is never done, and he sets the tone for ACB's priorities in the new year. The ACB Scholarship Program not only helps students go to college or vocational school, it also gives the winners a chance to attend an ACB National Convention. Denise Colley is the new chair of the ACB Scholarship Committee, and she joins us on page 3 with all the details related to the 2018 Scholarship Program. Page 4 includes three recent articles read to you by Siri. Would you be willing to pay a million dollars to be able to see... What if being able to see meant just recognizing objects in black and white? How much vision would you need to gain in order for it to be worth that million dollars? The first article on page 4 raises these questions as it discusses the first gene therapy approved by the FDA. The American Printing House for the Blind has developed and deployed a new wayfinding system that works with their nearby Explorer app. It's installed at the Louisville International Airport. The article unveiling the new system is on page 4. In today's world, people are constantly taking pictures and videos on their phones of all kinds of things. They take pictures of people on the street, events, just about anything you can imagine. Many of those photos find their way onto Facebook. You may be in Facebook in many pictures and not even know it. Facebook has announced a new feature that can recognize your face in photos across their platform. You can use this information to tag yourself in the photo, ask that that photo be removed, etc. Read more about the feature on page 4. And on page 5 is the Soundprints calendar. Page 2. The following article was posted on ACB Leadership on December 11, entitled, Looking Back, Looking Ahead by Eric Bridges, ACB Executive Director. What a year we've had. The year 2017 brought many triumphs and challenges. In January, ACB commended the U.S. Access Board for releasing revised guidelines encompassing Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. The guidelines require the federal government 
to further assure electronic communications are accessible for both internal and external purposes for individuals with disabilities and allow for government to lead by example toward breaking down electronic access barriers. It's been almost two decades since the Access Board refreshed its guidelines on electronic communications, and the need for further revisions has been years in the making. The role of Internet and mobile communications play in our lives today wasn't even conceivable the last time we had a major refresh of the 508 regulations, and we're glad that government will now be able to lead by example on making electronic communications accessible for all. The Access Board also more clearly defined the scope of Section 508 regulations in light of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, covered under the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, and created greater harmony with standards set by the European Commission and Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG. In late January 2017, the ACB Board, staff, and several state and affiliate leaders met in the Washington, D.C. area to develop a new plan for the organization. ACB's new Strategic Action Plan will guide the organization in the future across five critical focus areas, including advocacy, policy and legislation, affiliates and membership, convention and meetings, development, and marketing and communications. The five focus areas were identified by the Board of Directors as having the highest potential impact for our organization moving forward. Each focus area has a set of goals, associated action steps, time frames, and accountable leaders to help drive change and ensure completion of the objectives. The plan also identifies any resource requirements, such as people needed to work on the task, funds to get the job done, or outside resources needed, measures of success, and an evaluation process for each goal to ensure that the organization is moving in the right direction to get the job of the ACB Strategic Action Plan completed. In developing and executing the ACB Strategic Action Plan, we hope to achieve some ambitious goals. The top 10 goals are 1. Use our advocacy, policy, and legislative efforts to actualize the backbone of our organization. 2. Ensure our advocacy efforts are improving our ability to function in a society where we all win in the future. 3. Carve out key focus areas that will allow ACB to find a prominent place in revolutionizing the way the world works. 4. Support and strengthen affiliates and their membership through a variety of actions designed to increase affiliate health and effectiveness and increase membership engagement. 5. Develop a stronger network and sense of community for ACB members through ACB conventions and meetings, including those who attend virtually. 6. Use the ACB convention to broaden membership and participation, especially among younger and more senior populations. 7. 
utilize continuing education credits at the convention to benefit our members, attract high-visibility guest speakers, and increase ACB's brand recognition. 8. Increase awareness of and help shape attitudes toward major issues for blind individuals within the sighted community. 9. Reach out and engage the broader community of blind individuals who are not currently affiliated with ACB or a similar organization. 10. Standardize and professionalize ACB's communication channels to ensure key messages reach their intended audiences in the most effective way possible. A few weeks later, ACB members and staff attended a reception at a United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in celebration of a new audio-described tour of two key museum areas, the Hall of Witness and the Hall of Remembrance. Thanks to ongoing generous support from the Aid Association for the Blind of the District of Columbia, ACB's audio description project received full funding for the development of this tour. Following the reception and a short presentation on the new audio guide by museum staff, visitors launched the new tour. In April, Representatives Carolyn Maloney, Democrat of New York, Gus Bilarakis, Republican of Florida, and Steve Cohen, Democrat of Tennessee, reintroduced the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage of Low Vision Devices Act of 2017, H.R. 2050. This legislation would establish a national demonstration-slash-research project tasked with identifying the impact to Medicare and Medicare recipients who are prescribed low-vision devices over a certain threshold cost. Through this demonstration, eligible participants could be prescribed assistive low-vision devices through a licensed eye care physician. These are the types of devices that might be too costly for someone on Social Security, but the kind of things that could have dramatic improvements in their daily life, such as being able to read their mail, keep track of their medications, or fill out important forms with personal information. More good news. In July, the Federal Communications Commission adopted new rules increasing the number of hours of audio-described programming available on top-rated broadcast and cable networks. ACB played an active role in the passage of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, CVAA, which paved the way for video-described programming. The new FCC rules, effective July 1, 2018, require audio-described programming be available from 6 a.m. to midnight, maintaining the 50 hours of prime time and children's programming, and adding 37.5 hours of additional audio-described content. The networks that must currently comply with this rule are ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, Disney Channel, History, TBS, TNT, and USA. ACB sees this as a step forward for equal access. We'll continue to seek out new pathways forward for further expansion of audio description wherever possible. 
In August, Representatives Gus Bilirakis, Republican of Florida, and Agna Eshko, Democrat of California, introduced H.R. 3457, which calls for the Controller General of the United States to investigate the government's systemic failure to provide materials in accessible formats for recipients of Medicare and Medicaid. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is required under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 to provide materials in an accessible format for recipients who are blind and visually impaired. According to the National Institutes of Health, roughly 24 million Americans experience some significant degree of vision loss, even after the use of corrective lenses, like glasses or contacts. However, it has been difficult to track the number of blind and visually impaired individuals covered under CMS programs, making it difficult to track CMS's effectiveness in meeting the requirements of Section 504. A few weeks later, researchers at the University of Hawaii worked with Google, ACB, and the National Park Service to audio-describe print brochures at 15 park sites throughout the state of California. This phase of the Uni Description Project focused on description of the brochures available in California's national parks, including Yosemite. The funding was shared between UH and ACB, with the National Park Service adding significant in-kind support at each of the involved sites. Shortly after that, ACB's audio description project, along with the Mid-Tennessee Council of the Blind, the Tennessee School for the Blind, and the Tennessee Performing Arts Center, offered a rare opportunity for blind people to experience the total eclipse of the sun. How? Through the use of audio description. Prior to the eclipse, Dr. Joel Snyder hosted a total eclipse audio described on ACB radio. Snyder, the director of ACB's audio description project, presented an hour of songs, interviews, and special guests with the main event described live from the Tennessee School for the Blind. Between 1.15 and 1.45 p.m., Nashville-based audio describer Julia Cawthon described the eclipse as it happened and provided a vivid translation of the visual event into words. This summer saw many natural disasters, Hurricane Harvey, Irma and Maria, and the wildfires out west. Many people in the ACB family emailed and called our offices, asking what they could do to help. So ACB developed a relief fund to assist members in the affected areas. Financial contributions to the ACB Disaster Relief Fund may be made at http colon slash slash donate dot acb dot org slash relief. If you prefer to pay by check, send to American Council of the Blind, 6300 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 195, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. Be sure to write in the memo line on your check that your gift is for disaster relief.
Gift cards can also be sent to the above address. If you would prefer to donate via phone, call 800-866-3242. In October, the National Office staff and a number of ACB members in the D.C. area heard oral arguments at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in American Council of the Blind versus Nuchin, M-N-U-C-H-I-N, also known as the currency case. In 2016, the government moved back the target date for the next currency redesign involving the $10 note from 2020 to 2026. ACB then sought an order from the district court requiring that the $10 bill be made accessible by 2020 and all the remaining denominations be made accessible by 2026. While this order was under consideration, the Treasury Secretary advised the court that he has already complied with his legal obligation to make currency accessible by furnishing external currency readers to people with visual impairments. While the Secretary indicated that he still intended to proceed with adding a tactile feature in the next major redesign, he was doing so as a matter of policy as opposed to fulfilling a legal requirement. The district court denied ACB's motion in January 2017, and ACB appealed. We asked the appeals court to do two things. One, to order that the $10 bill be made accessible by 2020, and all the remaining denominations be made accessible by 2026. And two, we are asking that the court issue a ruling that external currency readers do not provide meaningful access to currency. We expect a ruling shortly. To hear ACB's arguments, visit http colon slash slash www.acb.org slash currency c-u-r-r-e-n-c-y dash case dash audio. More recently, a Coalition of Blind and Visually Impaired Individuals and Advocacy Groups has filed a nationwide class action against Hulu to end the video streaming company's ongoing exclusion of blind and visually impaired Americans. The lawsuit, filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts, challenges Hulu's violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The company fails to provide audio description for any streaming videos. In addition, Hulu's website and applications are not accessible to blind and visually impaired individuals who use screen readers to navigate the Internet. Over the course of the past year, ACB has also been engaged with key partners and stakeholders in the airline and automotive industries. ACB participated in a working group to develop accessible in-flight entertainment and communication systems for commercial aircraft, presenting consensus guidelines to the Department of Transportation in November. ACB has also worked closely with auto manufacturers, tech companies, and disability advocates toward the implementation of autonomous vehicles, assuring that Americans who are blind will have access to such vehicles and that safety on our streets for pedestrians 
remains a top priority. While great progress has been made on many of these issues, they are not fully resolved. We may need your assistance and advocacy on some of these issues. Stay tuned to the Washington Connection and future issues of the forum for further information. Page 3. Denise Colley is on the ACB Board of Directors and she is the new chair of the ACB Scholarship Committee this year. And we're going to be talking ACB scholarships. It's time to begin thinking about those applications and and getting them into ACB. So, Denise, we're glad you're on Soundprints with us today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Denise, tell us about this year's ACB scholarship program, how people can apply, and the types of scholarships that are available, and also that extra perk that comes with being a scholarship winner, and that is attending the ACB convention in July. Okay. Well, the uh, scholarship application is actually up as we speak on the ACB website. If you go to acb.org, you will see a link that will take you to the application. The deadline for submitting your application is February the 15th. Um, all applications go to our Minneapolis office, and they um, work to review them. Um, kind of just a little bit about our requirements. Um, we did lower our GPA this year. It used to be that we required students to have a 3.3 GPA or above. Um, we have brought that down to 3.0 because we are looking at some other things besides their GPA. Um, the student must be enrolled enrolled full-time in an accredited um, post-secondary institution, except for um, our Hebner Scholarship, which is more of a vocational scholarship, and that one uh, requires that the individual be working full-time and going to school and taking um, <clears throat> courses that are, uh, you know, Related to their job. Related, good courses, Uh yeah. Uh Um, uh, um, They don't need to be American citizens, but the individual must be attending a school in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, We do strongly encourage, in fact, we've gotten to the point now where we really require our winners to attend the National Convention. Um, Unless there's some real good reason why they can't and um, what we look at for those things are we will waive attendance at the convention if during that time of convention the student is going to summer school um, they're training for a guide dog or they're working full-time and they can't get away but they have to give us some kind of proof that 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 is occurring Mm -hmm. Um, students um, who are return scholarship winners for the first two years, will get their expenses paid. Uh, but for the third year on, if a student wins a scholarship, we really um, are excited about that. We encourage them to apply. Um, but ACB at that point doesn't cover expenses to attend the convention. Um, but, you know, they, if the student comes, they still participate in all of the activities that week that the scholarship committee has. And we do expect them to come in at at the beginning of the convention and yes. stay 
They come uh-huh. in at the beginning of convention. Uh-huh. We have um, the several activities that the scholarship winners are required to participate in at convention. Uh, one is that on the Friday night, this year would be June 1st, the first uh, Friday night of uh, convention, uh, we have a scholarship dinner for the scholarship winners and the scholarship committee members, and students are required to be at that dinner, so they come in on that Friday or possibly Thursday, depending on when they need to fly in. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Saturday, ACB Students uh, sponsors a luncheon that um, scholarship winners and families and uh, other people who want to pay for the lunch are invited to. Um, on the Monday of convention, we have our award ceremony that morning, and scholarship winners must be there to get their uh, their uh, scholarship. And then that evening, we have a scholarship reception, and that reception is um, uh, for winners, for the scholarship committee, and at least two representatives from each um, state affiliate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they can stay the rest of the week if they wish absolutely. to. Absolutely. We pay for up to seven nights lodging, uh, half of a room lodging. So when you come, you are paired with another student. Or if family members come with you, that's perfectly fine. We encourage that. But they then are responsible for all of their expenses plus um, paying for half of a room. Mm-hmm. Um, we pay for... Um, the pre-registration fee, when the student pre-registers, we do pay for that uh, fee, so they don't have to pay for that. Um, we pay um, uh, $50 a day per diem so that for it to help with food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do pay travel, and we do reimburse for uh, some ground transportation costs, such as taxi mm-hmm. fares and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 a wonderful opportunity for them to get to um, participate in the convention, as well as receive the scholarship. Now let's talk a little bit about um, about the different scholarship levels. It's not just all people in the first in four years of college that are already in college and whatever. There's there's different. Um, Different levels, like is, aren't there some for entering freshmen? There are. We have graduate school, uh, etc. Uh, we have scholarships for entering freshmen, uh, undergraduate, uh, graduate, and vocational scholarships. Uh, we have scholarships um, for uh, individuals who are like going into um, education, going into computer science, going into business. Um, going into vocational rehabilitation. As I said, we have the one scholarship for individuals who are working and are returning to school to finish their degree or whatever they're doing. Um, so we look at you know everything from entering freshmen all the way up to graduate and postgraduate uh, uh, courses and, and curriculums for eligibility. Uh, most of our scholarships, we're really working hard to try to combine a few of our scholarships. Right now, we give approximately 18 to 20 scholarships a year, depending on uh, some years, uh, um, because the state, uh, state affiliates can also um, have scholarships that they uh, run through the ACB scholarship program. 
And so if a student, and, and usually those require uh, uh, the student to be a resident of that state. Um, if that does occur and the state chooses to give a scholarship for a particular year, we do require that that state then pick up the person's um, travel expenses. Um, but we are trying to combine our scholarships more because um, some of our scholarships are rather small at this point, you know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. And we, we know that that's not, these days, there's not really enough money to go to school on. So we're hoping that we'd like to get some more of our scholarships up to that $4,500 level, which would be less scholarships, but much more, uh, you know, scholarships that are going to be much uh, much more lucrative for the student. Mm -hmm. Over the years, there have been a number of people who are active in ACB uh, get started in ACB by coming to the scholarship program. So. Absolutely, because one of the things you do get, one of the real perks you get if you come, um, is that you get a uh, one-year membership to our ACB students organization. We, um, one of the things we really talk to our applicants about when we're interviewing them is um, kind of what goes on at convention because while the scholarship winners have some specific activities they um, are required to participate in, we really encourage them to stay as long as they can throughout the week and we encourage them to get involved in you know, attending activities the students have and their, and their um, seminars and programs. Uh, we talk about the fact that, you know, we have a lot of special interest affiliates that may uh, be uh, geared to the students' um, academic interests, and we encourage them to take a look at those activities on the registration form and look at w those that they'd like to attend and participate in. We really encourage them to go to the exhibit hall. We talk about the exhibit hall being a great place to go and, and that you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. And and we do get a lot of um, applicants who, once they've come, you know, get involved. You know, that's one of our goals is to be able to bring them in, show them the benefits um, and the pluses of being involved in a uh, grassroots uh, organization like ours and, you know, why, why they should do that. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm a, um, a senior in high school, or I'm in college and I haven't ever applied for the scholarships before, um, what do I need to do in order to apply? You, first of all, would go online and um, get to the scholarship uh, application itself. You complete the application. Along with the application, you have to provide uh, transcript, your grade transcripts. Um, uh, usually for our high school students, we want the grade transcripts for their past four years of high school. Uh, you provide proof of uh, acceptance at the college or university you're going to. Um, and you uh, provide proof of um, uh, blindness. You do have to be legally blind to apply to get a scholarship. So you have to apply proof of legal blindness. And then you have to provide two letters of two. Um, like reference <laughs> letters? Yeah, reference letters. I couldn't get the word I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> reference letters. Mm -hmm. um, and those all then get submitted to our Minneapolis office. And we review all of those things. Um, we then, we have four um, 
subcommittees within the scholarship committee. We have our vocational subcommittee, our entering freshmen, our undergraduate and our graduate subcommittees, and they then get a list of individuals that we look at and score, and certain ones are inter uh, selected to be interviewed. And um, sometimes a student who applies can be eligible for three or four scholarships. So uh, just because you may not um, receive one, you very well could receive another one because of um, the kinds of scholarships we have. So we've had confusion because we've had students say, well, I already got called by somebody. You know, are you the same people? And we're saying, well, you might get a call from two or three subcommittees and ask to be interviewed by two or three subcommittees because you can be eligible for more than one scholarship. And if a student, if an applicant is eligible for more than one scholarship, what we really try to do then is look at the one that's going to give them um, the most amount of money when that's possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they don't, especially, they don't need to designate which scholarship they're no. applying for. They just no. apply. They just apply. We mm -hmm. look at... Um, each of the scholarships has specific, or most of them have specific eligibility criteria in terms of what they're looking for. And so we look at them, um, and then we determine which ones they're eligible for. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And February 15, the dates moved up. Yes. Wow. Dates moved up. We've done this the last, um, two or th well, the last three, four years, three years at least, okay. because um, it was later, but that really made it difficult to get all the, the uh, interviews done, the, the scoring done, the selections done, and allow our Minneapolis office to have significant time to arrange travel and things like that. Once you're notified that you have been chosen to receive a scholarship, then um, you work closely with myself as chair, with the Minneapolis office, and with Janet Dickelman, our convention coordinator, to arrange your travel, to help you get registered if you need that, to answer any questions. Um, we, are, uh, we have a mentoring program, which I'm really going to uh, work hard at this year, making it stronger so that we really can pair scholarship winners, especially if this is their first time coming to convention, up with a mentor who will, uh, you know, be in touch with them prior to convention, make sure that all their questions have been answered, that uh, they feel good about, you know, they're coming, that parents have been assured when they're sending their new freshmen off to our <laughs> yes. convention that everything is going to be okay, you know. And um, But I really want our mentors um, to really stay with the student for at least the first part of the week and be there and be available so that that student, you know, has somebody that they can call on if something comes up, if they have issues, if they have concerns, if they have questions during the time that they're there because we want it to be a good experience for all of our students. So what is the website? How do they find that application? If they go to www.acb.org on that first page, the home page, you will see a link that says 2018 ACB Scholarships. You click on that link. It then gives you directions on um, what we're looking for and some of our eligibility criteria. And then there is a link there to take you directly to the online application that you complete, you complete and submit. And then you send um, the accompanying documentation 
uh, either by fax, by uh, snail mail, or by uh, email. And all of the information for faxing or is all there. sending mm-hmm. is all right there. All right there. Right. Mm-hmm. You just need to follow directions. That's right. You need to follow directions. That's a skill in itself, Denise. It, is. it certainly is. <laughs> Sometimes we have trouble following directions, you know. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and I might say just quickly, too, some of the things, just so that students know, some of the things that, you know, we look at when we're um, reviewing our applications and evaluating them is, Certainly, we look at academic performance. We look at the types of courses you're taking. You know, if somebody's out there just taking a bunch of fluff classes, they might not be as likely to be um, considered for an interview as somebody who's taking classes that are, you know, really geared to a specific um, uh, career line or or, uh, academic uh, endeavor. Um, And we certainly know that our entering freshmen have no clue when they first go to college, what they're going to go into, and that's fine. But they kind of have some idea. Um, And then we look at things like we do look at test records, SAT tests and those kinds of things. But we look at things like extracurricular activities, um, if you've had any internships or done any volunteer work or any research work related to the degree that you're going, you know, the program that you're going into. Uh, we look at what kind of advocacy experience do you have. This is something we've added this year. We want to know, uh, have you done any advocacy? Do you know what that is? How, you know, did, were you ever in a situation where you had to advocate for yourself? And, did, you know, how did it come out and what did you do? Um, we look at employment. If you have, um, you know, any work experience, we do look at those things. So there are several things we look at as we are reviewing the applications. You're looking at the whole person, person. not just the person sitting in the classroom. Right. I think that is is so important because oftentimes people say, well, I haven't really done anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) if, if they've been in a club, if they've participated in an organization, if they've volunteered, um, you know, handing out um, handing out flyers for a group, or if they've gone and served food somewhere, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, all those little things. It doesn't have to be for great amounts of time, but uh, if if it's things that people can consistently show that they've done, it means they're getting up, getting out, and not just hibernating in the corner. It's important to be there and and work on your books, but it's also important to to have other interests outside of that as well. Yeah, you know, how well-rounded an individual are you? Uh, Leadership skills, that's another one that's really important to us. What kind, you know, do you have demonstrated leadership skills? And it doesn't have to be in the area of your, you know, of your um, education. In in that area. It can be in anything. Exactly. You could have been the president of the, um, you know, chess club in school yeah. or the president right. of something else or the secretary of something. Those are important. And sometimes people will say, well, but my school was so small. Um, I, I, my husband, Adam, he often tells a story of um, having 
applied for and won through the Easter Seal Society a trip to Denmark years ago. Mm -hmm. And when he was filling out the application, um, the person that was assisting him from Easter Seals said, well, uh, what have you done? Oh, well, I played in the band, but our band was what? She said, it doesn't matter. You played in the band. Right. Nobody knows how many people were in your band. That's right. They don't know if there were 200 or 20. Yeah, exactly. uh, well, what else have you done? Well, I was in the chorus, but it was it doesn't matter. You were in the chorus. Mm -hmm. Well, I was in the scout troop. Okay. All right. Let's put that down. And, mm -hmm. you know, you put down everything. And and you tell people what you have done. If if you were in Girl Scouts, is coming, it's January, so it's Girl Scout cookie time, right? Right. So, so okay, so you sold cookies three times. I mean, that may sound, may think, oh, big deal. But you know what? If you were successful, if you sold the most troop boxes of cookies in your troop, you got out and did something. You did something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you were in Boy Scouts and you sold popcorn, well, guess what? You know? One area where we really um, are uh, do not get the number of applications we would like to, and it mm -hmm. just seems like it's the best way every year is, um, you know, we have a vocational subcommittee, and our vocational subcommittee um, has certain scholarships that they um, review. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the majority of those are not really vocational scholarships because we don't get a lot of applicants who are going into not necessarily a, uh, you know, a major educational program. Mm -hmm. They're going into more of a vocational. They're going into nursing or they're going into physical therapy or they're going into something, um, you know, that may be considered more of a vocational kind of thing. And they think, oh, well, that doesn't, I'm not going to apply. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I don't. I'm but they need eligible. to. Right. We really need those applications, and we and I really want to emphasize that we need more of those because that's the one area where we don't seem to get, you know, applications like we'd like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you being on Soundprints with us today and talking about the program. I hope we have many, many applicants this year, and uh, it's it's just a great opportunity. Um, looking forward to a good crop of scholarship winners this summer in St. Louis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're already excited. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Page four. Is a cure for blindness worth $1 million? Some blind people are questioning how the first gene therapy to treat inherited blindness has been valued among blind people, says Kim Charlson. Asking if you'd prefer to see always starts a lively debate, every opinion is going to be different. Charlson, who lost her sight at age 11 and now is president of the American Council of the Blind, says she would hold out for full-color vision. Others might settle for seeing in blurry black and white. And yet other blind people might have no desire to see at all. For a small number of blind people, this hypothetical question recently become a real one. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration approved Luxterna, the first gene therapy, to treat a specific form of inherited blindness called Labor's congenital amaurosis. In fact, it's the first gene therapy to treat any inherited disease at all. The news has been universally hailed as a scientific breakthrough. But its stratospheric cost potentially $1 million per patient, has provoked hard questions about the value of the ability to see, especially if its effects are only partial and temporary, as may be the case with Luxterna. Spark Therapeutics the company that makes Luxterna, has yet to set an official cost. 
but the $1 million figure comes from a November earnings call, where the company's CEO, Jeff Morezzo, suggested the high cost is justified in part by the earnings patients and their caretakers could gain. He cited the National Federation of the Blind to note that 70% of working-age Americans who are blind are unemployed. This economic reality of unemployment reminds us of a wonderful real-life example of the value of Luxterna, said Morazzo. One woman in the Luxterna trial regained enough vision to get her very first job at age 38. The National Federation of the Blind took issue with being cited this way. Chris Danielson, a spokesperson for the organization, says Spark was relying on erroneous and harmful notions about the capacity of blind people to live the lives we want. Research into specific eye diseases is well and good, he says. But the high unemployment rate among blind people is due to society's low expectations for the blind and lack of training for skills like cane travel and reading braille that would help them lead independent lives. It's not like we've been sitting in rocking chairs for decades, and we're waiting until we can go to the hospital for the treatment, says Stacy Chervenka, who was born blind to an undeveloped optic nerve. Blind people have lives that are as busy and chaotic and full as any sighted people, she says. Chervenka was an executive officer for the California State Rehabilitation Council, and her husband, who was blinded by a gunshot wound, teaches blind people how to get around. She credits such training for their independent lives. When we spoke, they were preparing to take their four-year-old son on Amtrak for a holiday vacation. From a purely fiscal standpoint of getting the most bang for your buck, the government could do so much more good for so much less money by providing vocational rehabilitation, says Chervenka. Chervenka was not opposed to gene therapy to treat blindness, but she wanted to emphasize the trade-offs. Aside from the potential seven-figure price tag, the therapy comes with risks from injecting into the eyeball, plus it takes time to travel to a hospital that offers it. In the meantime, she asks, who's taking care of your kids? Who's doing your job? For her, it's not worth the hassle for only partial vision, but she would consider it if her vision could be good enough to drive the one place she feels like being blind actually impinges on her life. For some people who are blind, particularly if they have been blind since birth, gaining sight can actually be a bizarre, disruptive experience. It isn't like you can turn on a switch and someone who hasn't seen would be able to see, because their brain doesn't know what vision is, says Charlson. People who have regained sight, such as through a corneal transplant, report, being unable to recognize objects until they pick them up in their hands as they had been doing their whole life. Charlson says Luxterna is very promising, and she hopes gene therapy can be developed to treat other forms of inherited blindness. For now, Luxterna can only help people who are born with one specific mutation, RPE65, for one specific disorder, labors congenital amaurosis, one of dozens of conditions that can cause blindness. It is for this reason that some blind advocates take such issue with Spark's justification of a $1 million value. They don't want it to be marketed using language that comes at the expense of blind people now, most of whom the treatment cannot help. This has been a perennial tension. In 2016, the Foundation Fighting Blindness, which funds research into red and all degenerative diseases and backed some of the research behind Luxterna, released a series of videos for its hashtag How I See It campaign. One video featured a scene of kids at the playground going dark, asking viewers to contemplate being unable to take kids to the park. An outcry ensued. In response, Chervenka filmed and uploaded a video of her and her husband taking their son to the park. It's the worst video a blind person with an iPad, she joked. But she made her point. 
she could take her kid to the park just fine. Wayfinding system for visually impaired installed at Louisville Airport. Louisville International Airport is the first fully accessible airport in the nation, and possibly in the world, according to Craig Meter, president of the American Printing House for the Blind. On Tuesday, the app introduced wayfinding mobile technology that uses Bluetooth and Beacon technology to help blind and visually impaired travelers navigate the airport. The system, which was created with funding support from the James Graham Brown Foundation, uses more than 140 beacons placed every 30 or so yards to give users turn-by-turn -turn directions and describe to them what is nearby. Every concourse is mapped, every gate, every restaurant, every bathroom, every ticket counter, baggage carousel can be found and identified using a navigation app such as Nearby Explorer, Meter said at the unveiling event Tuesday. We believe that a compassionate city is an accessible city. People can use the new technology by downloading the Nearby Explorer mobile application. There is a free version as well as one for $79.99. The paid version of the app offers additional features including the ability to save information. Users can either get directions to a specific location or use the compass feature to identify places in a given direction. The application uses the beacon's latitude, longitude, floor number and signal strength to figure out where the user is. Meter said that one person told him that they didn't even know the Louisville airport had a Smashburger until he used the new technology. Larry Scutcheon, Director of Technology Products Research for AF, is blind and said he had successfully navigated his way to the security checkpoints in his gates in the past but never knew which airline counter was which or what restaurants were there. Independence is bigger than most people can realize, Scutcheon said. The Louisville airport is piloting the program, and if it goes well, then it could be expanded to other airports across country. Our goal is pretty simple. It's to create an impact on the world by creating products that allow students and adults to fully access their world, Meter said. Facebook's facial recognition now finds photos. Facebook wants to make sure you know about and control the photos of you people upload, even if they don't tag you. So today, Facebook launched. A new facial recognition feature called Photo Review that will alert you when your face shows up in newly posted photos so you can tag yourself, leave it be, ask the uploader to take the photo down, or report it to Facebook. The feature should give people confidence that there aren't pics of them floating around Facebook that they could see but just don't know about. It could also help thwart impersonation. But Facebook tells me it has no plans to use facial recognition to enhance ad targeting or content relevancy sorting like showing you more newsfeed posts from friends who post untagged photos of you or ads related to locations where you appear in untagged photos. If you're in someone's profile photo which is always public, you'll always be notified. For other photos, you'll only get notified if you're in the audience for that photo so as to protect the uploader's privacy and not alert you about photos you're not allowed to see. A photo review section of the profile will keep track of all your untagged but recognized photos. Facebook's applied machine learning product manager Nippon Mather tells me the feature is designed to give people more control, make them feel safer, and provide opportunities for nostalgia. Facebook is also adding a new overarching photo and video facial recognition opt-out privacy setting that will delete its face template of you and deactivate the new photo review feature as well as the old tag suggestions that used facial recognition to speed up tagging when friends posted a photo of you. These will all roll out everywhere over the next few weeks except in Europe and Canada where privacy laws prohibit Facebook's facial recognition tech. Facebook is also using the feature to assist the vision impaired.
Now Facebook's machine vision powered feature that describes what's in a photo will also read aloud the names of untagged friends. Over time our goal is to make these features available everywhere. But right now we're focusing on markets where tag suggestions are available says Facebook's Deputy Chief Privacy Officer Rob Sherman. While tag suggestions might be seen as weakening privacy, photo review could be perceived as enhancing it and might get a pass from regulators. Whether it's an unauthorized photo of you that you want taken off Facebook, an embarrassing pic you don't want tagged but want to monitor comments on, or someone trying to pretend to be you. Photo review gives people more visibility into how their likeness is used. Page 5. The Soundprints Calendar. January 9, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, Savvy, will have its meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue in Owensboro. For more information, call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418. January 10 is the KCBPR Membership Committee. That call is at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the conference line at 605-475-6006, intercode 294444. January 11 is the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision Support Group Meeting in Louisville from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at the United Crescent Hill Ministries on State Street. This is a great activity for those who have begun experiencing vision loss or who have had vision loss for several years. For more information and to sign up, call 502-895-4598. Also on January 11, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its monthly conference call meeting at 7 p.m. The number is 605-475-4700 and the code is 155619. For more information about Northern Kentucky Council, call Jerry Slusher at 859-781-7369. January 12 is a GLCB roundabout. This time, it's a bingo week. Education and technology from 3.30 to 5. The tip sheet and discussion time from 5 to 6. Dinner, 6 to 7, $5 per person. And bingo, crafts and games from 7 to 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. On January 13, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Board will have its monthly conference call meeting at 11 a.m. The phone number is 605-475-6006 and the code is 294444. January 14, KCB Next Generation will hold its conference call meeting at 8 p.m. This is an open meeting for all members 40 and under. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. Also on January 14 is the next meeting of ACB Families at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the conference line at 712-432-3900, enter code 796096. For program details, subscribe to the Families List at families-subscribe at acblists.org.
or watch for announcements on the KCB News List. You can subscribe by sending an email to kcbnews-subscribe at kentucky-acb.org. On January 15, the Kentucky Council of the Blind Board will meet at 7.30 p.m. by phone. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. January 19 is a GLCB roundabout. Education and technology from 3.30 to 5. Discussion time from 5 to 6. Dinner 6 to 7. Games and crafts from 7 to 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call 502-895-4598 for details. January 20 is National Braille Month, celebrating Louis Braille and La Procede. From 1 to 3 p.m., for Louis Braille's 209th birthday, APH is joining with students at the Kentucky School for the Blind to tell the story of tactile books for the blind at the American Printing House for the Blind, 1839 Frankfurt Avenue. Free for all ages, registration is required. Call the museum at 502-899-2213. On January 21st, the KSB alumni will have its board meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On January 22, the Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana will have its monthly membership meeting at 7 p.m. on the conference line at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. January 24, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have its peer support group meeting in Lexington from noon to 2 p.m. It will be held at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway, in Lexington. RSVP by calling 859-259-1834. January 25 will be another Low Vision Support Group meeting in Louisville from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries, sponsored by the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision. For more information, call KCB at 502-895-4598. On January 26 will be Another GLCB roundabout, education and technology from 3.30 to 5, discussion from 5 to 5.30, page turners 5.30 to 6, followed by a meeting of the Tri-State Library users, dinner from 6 to 7, and games and crafts from 7 until 10. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.